So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal wow. of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. When it comes to energy and the environment, the Trump administration was preoccupied in its first year with rolling back policies implemented by the Obama administration. Trump has eased oil and gas development on federal lands and offshore while suspending a rule that would limit methane leaks. The Trump administration has begun a process to repeal the Obama administration's signature climate change regulation, the Clean Power Plan, and of course they've begun the process of withdrawing the United States from the Paris Agreement. There's an important factor in many of the policies Trump is seeking to repeal, and that's something called the social cost of carbon. The social cost of carbon is also turning out to be an important factor in whether Trump can succeed in revoking these policies. Trump has attacked the social cost of carbon directly in a couple of ways. We're going to focus on those efforts today and consider some aspects of the social cost of carbon that may undermine the Trump administration's efforts. With us today is Mark Templeton, a clinical professor of law and director of the Abrams Environmental Law Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Jeff. And Roberto Borgert, a third-year law student at the University of Chicago Law School who has been leading the Abrams Environmental Law Clinic's work on the social cost of carbon. Welcome, Roberto. Thanks for having us. So let's get right to the social cost of carbon. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with it, what is it and why is it important? Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, so the social cost of carbon is a way of quantifying the impacts of climate change, right? So we hear a lot of discussion about how sea levels are rising, um, weather is changing, which will affect uh, crop productivity, um, how uh, there may be costs to changing uh, infrastructure in some of our major cities. Um, heard that kind of coming out of uh, Superstorm Sandy, for example. And what the social cost of carbon does is say, let's look at all of these different um, forces that are out there as a result of climate change, and let's uh, put a dollar figure on that. Um, so uh, uh, during the Obama administration, um, there was a process led by what was called the Interagency Working Group, uh, chaired by my now colleague, Michael Greenstone. Um, and they, uh, the Interagency Working Group was a collection of experts from within the White House and across the major uh, departments and agencies in the federal government. And they looked at some of the existing climate models and said, based upon this uh, information that exists, 
what is the uh, cost uh, of emissions? So basically the social cost of carbon is a dollar figure, um, which says that for the emission of a uh, each additional ton of carbon dioxide, this is the cost, uh, which is about f uh, $42 uh, per ton right now. Okay, and um, so this social cost of carbon came out a few years ago. Has it already been tested in the courts? Uh, yes, it has been tested in the courts. Um, the courts have said that, uh, first, it's important that uh, agencies, when they're making decisions, uh, consider the uh, uh, impacts uh, of climate um, and that the social cost of carbon is one uh, valid and legitimate way uh, for them to do that. And you, you have an article on this topic coming out in Forbes as well in which you say the social cost of carbon is truly in a tier of its own. That's a quote. How so? Well, it was a product of this uh, interagency working group process, again, with experts from the White House and from the different agencies drawing on the uh, top three climate models uh, that exist. Uh, these models um, look at different scenarios in terms of temperature rise and then look at the impacts in terms of climactic impacts. And again, what this did was then take that information and put it uh, into economic terms uh, in terms of what the actual damages could be. And so what the social cost of carbon does is, is really in a tier of its own because it represents the best research uh, uh, that's been done uh, on these issues, and uh, the agencies have obligations to look at. Uh, depends, it depends upon the exact law that, uh, that the agency is trying to implement, um, but uh, really to uh, use the best available science uh, in making its decisions. And, that's, and given that kind of process and the scientific rigor, um, that's why we believe the social cost of carbon really is a, uh, a tool that they should be using when figuring out whether they should be regulating or moving forward with different projects or not. So why, let's step into President Trump's shoes for a minute. Why would he want to undermine this calculation? Sure. Uh, so if you take the position that President Trump is seeking to undercut environmental regulations from the Obama era, uh, tweaking the social cost of carbon is a good way to do that. And the reason for that is anytime the federal government issues a significant regulation, it has to do what's called cost-benefit analysis. That is, the benefits of any regulation must outweigh the costs. And so if you have a high social cost of carbon number, that means that more regulations that seek to cut greenhouse gas emissions are going to be cost justified. And so by lowering the social cost of carbon, it allows the Trump administration to say, look, the value is not as, is not as high as we thought it was, and so we really don't have to be regulating it. And for example, we no longer need the clean power plan. Okay, so now in the Forbes article, you outline two different ways that the Trump administration is working at undermining the social cost of carbon. The first one has to do with uh, revoking documents that were issued by this interagency working group. Um, can you tell us a little more about this approach and what's the likelihood that it may succeed? Yeah, um, one of the benefits of having the interagency working group uh, procedure was that it provided a number for the entire federal government to use when calculating the social cost of carbon. By revoking the social cost of 
carbon documents, uh, there is no longer a uniform rule uh, that would cover all agency analyses. So in effect, what that does is it lets each agency, if they decide to quantify the social cost of carbon, they can use whatever number they like. Well, they can use whatever number that fits their policies. Or at least that's what they're arguing. That's what they would argue. Uh, so I mentioned the Clean Power Plan repeal a little uh, bit ago. And in that document, EPA did quantify a social cost of carbon. But unlike the $42 a ton uh, that the Obama administration put forward, uh, they're estimating that the social cost of carbon is between $1 and $6. Now, I believe in the Forbes article, that's what you described as, as Trump's second approach for attacking the social cost of carbon. To to sort of keep it intact, but lower the value significantly. Yeah, that's true. Um, and so I guess if going back to just the revocation of the documents, uh, part of that is going to be symbolic in saying that the U.S. government does not believe that the social cost of carbon should like even exist or take uh, take a, a big role in uh, policymaking. Um, but then in instances where perhaps they may get more pushback from the courts on not having a social cost of carbon, it gives them more leeway to fudge the numbers. Okay. And have we seen, so we have this instance of the EPA um, with a very low social cost of carbon of about a dollar. Have we seen other agencies come come across with different numbers? Well, what we've seen is we've seen other agencies say that, uh, yes, climate, and we've seen this in a number of decisions related to environmental impact statements. Um, so uh, under the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, if there is a major federal a uh, action that's going to significantly affect uh, the environment, uh, then the federal government needs to prepare what's called an environmental impact uh, statement. Um, and so in some of these environmental uh, impact statements themselves, or even the question about whether they should issue uh, an environmental impact statement, they've basically said, uh, yes, uh, climate change exists, um, but we don't need to get into this uh, idea of applying the, the social cost of carbon. Um, they've said it for a couple of different reasons. One, they point to the fact that President Trump disbanded this interagency working group that created the social cost of carbon, and the term is withdrew the, the guidance um, that was given to the federal agencies about how to uh, use it. Um, they, uh, agencies have also uh, made an argument that uh, they don't have to use the social cost of carbon because they're actually not quantifying the benefits uh, of the action, and therefore they don't need to do a cost-benefit uh, analysis. And what we see time after time again is that these agencies in these individual uh, decisions about whether to uh, essentially approve projects or not are talking about all sorts of economic benefits. Uh, and when they talk about the economic benefits, they need to talk about the costs. And this, again, the social cost of carbon really is the way to talk about it. So essentially, they're saying either we don't need to use the social cost of carbon um, because Trump uh, revoked it, um, or uh, they're basically taking the approach that Roberto outlined, which was, okay, we'll grudgingly use it. We'll just set it at an artificially low value. And who are these agencies? Uh, so these agencies include the Forest Service, uh, the Office of uh, Surface Mining um, in the Department of Interior. Okay. And um, in the Forbes article, you mentioned a court case in Wyoming, which I believe centers around coal mining. That's yes, relevant? yes, uh, that is correct. Um, so uh, some environmental organizations are challenging 
the decision that Interior Secretary Zinke made uh, uh, almost a year ago, um, which was to revoke an order from his predecessor, Secretary Jewell. Uh, and in that order, uh, Secretary Jewell had placed a moratorium on new coal leasing on federal lands while a study was going to be done about the environmental impact of federal coal leasing. And so uh, Secretary Zinke basically uh, rescinded that moratorium and said, we're not going to do a study uh, on this. And what we have done in the clinic um, is in support of that uh, litigation, uh, we have asked the court to let us file an amicus brief on behalf of Professor Greenstone, again, who was the chair of the interagency working group that came up with the social cost of carbon, uh, to make a, a couple of points. Um, one point uh, is that this actually is a significant uh, decision. Uh, uh, basically, looking at what the cost would be uh, of the emissions uh, of the coal uh, that would be burned uh, with the moratorium um, being lifted. Um, we also talked about how uh, climate science has improved significantly since the last time a programmatic environmental impact statement was done, which was in the late 70s. So 40 years later, we understand climate science a lot better in the impacts of climate science, and that is therefore justifies doing a new uh, environmental assessment of coal leasing. And there's a lot of a lot of uh, impact at stake here. So that's what we're doing to support that underlying litigation using the expertise that Professor Greenstone uh, and we have. Is this a case where Secretary Jewell employed the social cost of carbon when he set the moratorium, and then? Secretary Zinke did not? So, um, Secretary Sally Jewell. Sally Jewell. Uh, uh, what they had, they had issued was a scoping document. And uh, in the scoping document, that would uh, lay out the contours of what this environmental impact statement would look like. Uh, they did discuss the social cost for carbon. And they said that they would be looking at the social cost of carbon as it relates to the federal co-leasing program. Um, and all of that was in the documents. It was all released. Uh, the next step was to actually undertake that study and do the environmental impact statement. Uh, but then administrations changed and Secretary Zinke, uh, under executive order from President Trump, uh, withdrew the scoping report and all of those documents and essentially uh, cut, cut down that program. Is it your contention that Doing something like withdrawing the report, which Zinke did, should also include a calculation of the social cost of carbon. So what we are advocating for is uh, that by withdrawing the the coal moratorium, that by itself, which by allowing uh, more coal to be produced, that needs to include the social cost of carbon. Um, and so that's kind of the environmental impact statement angle. But... By withdrawing the new environmental impact statement, we're arguing that uh, Secretary Zinke is violating the National Environmental Policy Act because there is a continuing duty to supplement any environmental impact statement. Uh, so the position really is either you do a new environmental impact statement here and use the social cost of carbon, or you amend the old environmental impact statement because we know a lot more now than we did 40 years ago. Okay. Now on the second front, this this strategy that EPA has taken of of settling on a much lower value for the social cost of carbon. That seems to 
um, raise the question of whether the current administration's ideology should have influence over the number that's set. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, absolutely. Um, so we in the clinic, uh, and certainly I think advocating um, uh, with Professor Greenstone uh, in many of these cases, believe that we need to have a uh, scientifically determined, data-driven approach to understanding uh, the uh, costs uh, of climate change. Um, and the problem, uh, or one of the problems, is a move away from science um, and, and uh, both uh, natural uh, hard science uh, and uh, economic uh, science uh, uh, that we see in the administration kind of more generally, uh, and uh, taking tools and uh, really uh, perverting them to lead to a different outcome, right? So using the means and perverting the means to reach a different end. Um, so for, to be really tangible here, right, the so social cost of carbon is a, a dollar figure or a, a range of dollar figures that estimate, give the best estimate for what the costs are of a marginal ton of emissions um, of, of carbon. Um, and uh, there are a number of different inputs uh, into that calculation. So one question is, you know, do you look at just the impacts kind of physically inside the United States, or do you think about the global uh, impacts? Um, and we believe that, uh, and the interagency working group uh, and others uh, uh, think firmly that one wants to look at global uh, damages. Uh, CO2 emissions uh, really are a, a global pollutant uh, in a way that others are not, right? A molecule of CO2 emitted anywhere is going to uh, contribute to raising global temperatures everywhere, which is different from uh, other kinds of uh, uh, emissions under the Clean Air Act, like particulates, which are going to have a much more kind of localized uh, kind of, of effect. Um, you, you have U.S. citizens who own properties uh, in other countries, and those properties will be uh, affected by flooding, right, if they're coastal uh, properties. Uh, uh, people may travel to these parts of the world, so they're going to be affected uh, by climate change. So there are a number of reasons why we think a global measure uh, is appropriate uh, here, including the fact that, you know, by um, looking at this as a global phenomenon and having a global social cost of carbon, that that will lead other countries to also recognize the importance of dealing with climate change as well. Um, and what the Trump administration has done, what EPA has done, is uh, really circumscribe that, just looking at domestic effects. And so by carving <laughs> off uh, all of these global damages, right? That's one way of affecting uh, the uh, equation um, for the social cost of carbon. Another uh, element is that um, to look at the damages um, that take place from climate change, it takes over a, per a period of time. And so the question is, how do you take this you know, stream of costs going off uh, into the future and bring them down to a dollar number today. And under basic kind of finance and investment theory, you uh, use something called a discount rate to take a stream of future payments and bring them back to your you know, present value. Um, what is the discount rate, though, has a big impact uh, in terms of 
you know, what your dollar value is today uh, from that future stream of payments. And the Trump administration has been arguing for a very high discount rate. Um, and when you have a high discount rate, that actually lowers the present value of that. Uh, and we think that the Trump, uh, there are a number of arguments for why a uh, lower discount rate uh, is appropriate, um, such as the fact uh, that uh, you know you really want to take into consideration what the impacts of climate change are going to be on uh, certain kinds of um, in, uh, almost like insurance. Like we're willing to pay some more money today to reduce the effects of climate change uh, in the future. Uh, and, and it's just a di very different approach um, from how the Trump administration looks at it. And we think that our approach is kind of based on a more scientific uh, approach. So this this sounds like it could be, I mean, it sounds to me like fairly new sorts of legal problems that have arisen because of this climate situation that we're facing with increasing urgency. Is there precedent that governs these questions in law already? So I'll speak to one part of this and then uh, in terms of uh, something called the circular A4, and then Roberto can talk to some of the cases, right? So uh, about 15 years ago, the Office of Management and Budget issued something called circular A4. And circular A4 really gives guidance uh, to federal agencies and how to think about future costs and how to conduct cost-benefit analysis. And a lot of the arguments that we are making in terms of what's the right way of thinking about the discount rate, what is the right way of thinking about the impact on future generations, those have all been in A4 um, for, you know, 15 uh, years. Um, and I don't know if you call it ironic, but when the Trump administration and President Trump and his executive order kind of revoked the uh, interagency working group, um, disbanded the interagency working group and revoked uh, its guidance, said, look to A4. We're like, great. Actually, look to A4. A4 actually supports uh, these approaches. Um, so that's kind of from the uh, administrative side. Uh, Roberto, in terms of, you want to speak to some of the cases that have happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I mentioned earlier the uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is called NEPA um, in the legal world. And what NEPA requires is that before any uh, agency does any federal action, it has to look at the environmental effects of that action. And how that plays in here is that some courts have started to say, you know what, climate change is happening. Uh, the government, your argument for not looking at the social cost of carbon doesn't pass muster. And so we're going to send uh, the project back to the agency, redo your homework, and come back to us once you've adequately considered uh, the effects of greenhouse gas emissions and the social cost of carbon. Uh, so two cases come to mind that have come down within the past year. Uh, one case happened in the District Court of Montana, where uh, the Department of Interior manages coal mining in the United States, and there was a proposal to add to an existing coal mine. And the Department of the Interior did not uh, look at the social cost of carbon, um, and also didn't look at air pollution costs. Um, and the judge there said, you know, I, I've heard these arguments that the social cost of carbon... Uh, is really dependent on the numbers that you use, but you can't just say that it's too uncertain to do anything. You need to at least examine the issue and uh, take a look at it because, I mean, the very fact that the social cost of carbon exists means that some people can have, have and can me measure this, uh, the type of damage that would result from this. And then another type of case uh, related to natural gas pipelines happened in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. 
where the D.C. Circuit said, uh, FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, you too did not adequately address uh, what the social cost of carbon would be from approving this project, or at least you haven't really given us a good explanation as to why you don't want to use the social cost of carbon. So that's kind of how the court cases are playing out. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, this year uh, and to see when, especially in the District of Montana case, when the Department of Interior comes back with its revised environmental impact statement, what the court will say then. And I'm curious how much um, results could vary in different courts. In a society in which we have conservative judges and liberal judges and increasing political polarity, you've said that you believe that the approach should be scientifically determined and data-driven. Can you really count on the court's to feel the same way about that? Well, I, I think that the courts play an important role in really helping to uh, police uh, administrative agencies, right? I mean, you can look at essentially uh, with the rise of the New Deal that uh, administrative agencies have played a much greater role in terms of regulating how um, and conduct and economic activity take place in our society, and the courts have been a place that people can go to to argue that the administrative agencies are not doing their jobs. Um, obviously, a lot of this depends upon the facts in any uh, given uh, case. Uh, obviously, some judges uh, are uh, more inclined or less inclined uh, to uh, constrain the agencies. Um, I, I think that in terms of the uh, National Environmental Policy Act, it's important to remember that it is uh, largely a procedural act. Uh, it does not require particular substantive outcomes. So what it requires is it requires the administrative agencies to really uh, investigate what are the potential environmental impacts and to make sure that that information is disclosed to the public so the public can be informed also before decisions are made. Um, uh, Justice Stevens said uh, in a famous case uh, that uh, NEPA uh, is designed to protect against uninformed decision-making. It's not uh, uh, designed to guarantee wise uh, decision-making. Um, and so, again, what I think this does is this forces – so I think in that sense, you know, we lawyers and judges are lawyers, right? Uh, you know, we like procedure. Um, and I think that in that sense, um, judges are uh, more inclined to uh, tell the agencies, look, you need to go through these procedural steps. Uh, it's a requirement. It doesn't dictate an outcome. Um, but you're, you're supposed to be able to do this homework. And in that sense, I think that you would see uh, more, maybe more alignment among conservative and liberal judges than you might uh, think on some substantive uh, issues, or at least uh, I hope so. Well, and I'll just note there that um, the D.C. Circuit case uh, about the pipeline, uh, there were George W. Bush appointed judges who voted to send the to send the environmental impact statement back to FERC. I think I would also say, you know, in the Forbes piece, we talk about the importance of the judiciary, and I think it's really critical, uh, not just on this issue, but so many other issues uh, these days. You know, but it is uh, just one part of the puzzle. Um, as I said before, NEPA is about making sure that the public is informed, and so the public then needs to you know, organize uh, on these issues and you know let the decision makers know that they actually care about these climate impacts and that they should make you know decisions which take these things into consideration. So let's talk a little bit more about a couple of the recent lawsuits 
with that have come into play over this. Who's suing and and what are their arguments and what did the court find? I know about a, a coal mine in Colorado lawsuit, a pipeline in Florida. Roberto? Uh, sure, yeah. The coal mine in Colorado that I believe you're referencing is the West Elk coal mine. Uh, and there was an infamous case in 2014. Uh, well, infamous, I guess, depending on which side you're on. But there, the, uh, I think, I believe it was the Forest Service uh, is, who was involved in permitting this coal mine expansion uh, had included the social cost of carbon uh, in a draft environmental impact statement. And in the final environmental impact statement had taken the social cost of carbon out uh, and an email uh, surface during this litigation saying that they took it out because it was too controversial. And not that none of that was in the administrative record. Um, but because of that, uh, because the agency didn't adequately explain why it didn't choose to use the social cost of carbon, uh, it was, again, like the other cases, sent back to the agency. And uh, I think this year that lit litigation will likely be resuming um, because the agency just finished that. It, it did its homework and is, is trying again. Um, but environmental groups uh, want there to be informed government decision-making. And I think uh, even if it is just procedural, acknowledging that greenhouse gases lead to climate change and that climate change uh, will inflict real damages on people um, is an important first step uh, in creating sustainable climate policy. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's important because when these analyses are done, uh, you often see, uh, like in cases like the West Elk uh, case, uh, that they may run a number of different scenarios uh, about um, you know, the impacts uh, on climate of the mine. Uh, and I believe it was in what, uh, essentially 17 of the 20 uh, different scenarios that they ran, um, that uh, it was negative uh, in terms of, when I say negative, uh, that including the social cost of carbon uh, meant that the costs of the project going forward, um, again, defined including the social cost of carbon would be negative. And, and the, you know, then we and others would argue that that project shouldn't go forward, um, that cost-benefit analysis really is an important tool for making these kinds of uh, governmental decisions. So the, the two of you um, make a very good case for a scientifically determined data-driven approach to the social cost of carbon. There's another side to this issue, the people who are trying to break it down. How strong do you think their case is? Do you see any vulnerability in the social cost of carbon that concerns you? Well, I think there's there's two things here. Uh, one is calculating the social cost of carbon is hard. Uh, there are you know global variables, uh, weather patterns, um, different heat effects, like what that does to regional and local climates, and so. What the IWG did uh, during the Obama administration was really. Um, I don't know about miraculous, but a really fantastic feat. Um, but because it is so complicated and because uh, likely because it came from Democratic administration, uh, industry groups are going to be hostile to it and uh, they're gonna, they'll be able to find ways to poke holes. Um, and because it's so complicated, I think they're, like, a judge's eyes will glaze over and just kind of say, this is complicated, let the agency handle it. And I think that gets to the second point, is that courts will often defer to agencies on these kind of technical, uh, expertise-driven decisions. Um, and so for folks that are trying to advocate for the social cost of carbon, when the agency doesn't want to do it, 
that's going to be an uphill battle. And I think we've seen that. Um, the typical dance right now is in, a, in litigation, the agency will not use the social cost of carbon. An environmental advocacy group will say, hey, you didn't use the social car- cost of carbon. Why not? And then the agency will say, it's too uncertain. It's uh, the technical stuff. Maybe it's based on conjecture. And we aren't 100% sure about all of this stuff. And the environmental uh, organization group will say, you don't have to be 100% sure. You would just need to do the analysis and say, well, maybe this could happen. Um, But in that case, courts will often defer to the agencies um, because, like Mark was saying, judges are lawyers. They're not economists. Um, If Michael Greenstone was on the bench, maybe you'd have a different outcome. But... He's not. And so I think kind of stepping back, you see under the Trump administration, the agencies and uh, the lawyers at the Department of Justice testing the courts, seeing how far, uh, I guess you could say they can push it or they can get away with um, not using the social cost of carbon. And so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing courts say, again, as, as Roberta was saying, Yes, while there may be some uh, uncertainty, um, we know that the dollar value is not zero. Um, And you need to be using the uh, best available information, um, the best available science um, that exists um, when you – uh, you know, do your analyses. And the best available is the best available. Uh, it is not, uh, it doesn't have to be perfection. Um, you can't, but you can't just kind of brush this under under the rug. And we're just about out of time. I just want to ask you the timeline over which you expect this to be sorted out. So uh, we are uh, have been involved in uh, are involved in a number of different um, projects uh, related to these environmental assessments or environmental impact statements. In some cases, I think what you're going to see is a series of cases uh, over the next couple of years um, where the courts are really going to help to define the contours of this. Again, we the courts have been clear that. Uh, climate change is real, (laughs) that there are costs to climate change, that the social cost of carbon is a good way of estimating those costs. Um, And, you know, each case uh, in law, while it has uh, general principles, it also has its own unique facts. And courts often want to stick to the facts and their rulings stick to the facts. So it's just going to take a few more of these cases over the next couple of years to really define the contours uh, of this. Okay. Um, Mark and Roberto, thank you for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. You can also find a link there to Mark's Forbes article on this topic. Special thanks to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast for recording this event. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.